Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another Battleground PA podcast. We, of course, as usual, have a lot to talk about. We've got stuff to talk about locally. We've got stuff to talk about at the Capitol, and we've got stuff to talk about in Washington, D.C. So let's get started. And look, if you want to join our conversation, you can do so by sending us a tweet or going to Facebook at Battleground PA. Or you can send us an email at topics at battlegroundpa.org. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. This is Battleground PA, a pen live podcast discussing the issues that matter to Pennsylvanians and documenting the events in our state that will shape the battle for your vote in the 2020 presidential elections. Again, welcome to all of our uh, Pen Live readers and now listeners. And it is great to have you here with us again. And we've got a lot to talk about, as I've kind of laid out for you. And but first, I want to start by welcoming our brilliant analysts. I want to start by welcoming Rajat Harris, who is representing our Democrats. Welcome, Rajat. Thank you. I say you're welcoming Democrats, but you have an independent brain there, Rajat. So sometimes <laughs> you take the Democratic stance and sometimes you don't. But Jeffrey, you seem to be a loyal Republican, or at least a loyal Trump protagonist. How are you today? I am just fine. Upbeat, ready to go. I know you are. And we are delighted to welcome back, to welcome to his old stomping ground, John Meisig. John with the Capital Star, how are you today? Good morning, Joyce. Always nice to be back on uh, familiar turf. Well, it's great to have you here. So guys, I think you've got to know what we have to talk about where do we begin? I guess the place to begin, frankly, is with the continuing concern, put it very diplomatically, from wide quarters of our population about how Black people, Black men in particular, are treated by police. That is the crux of it. Racism in the police force, racism in American society that is hurting people. And people are out there protesting and many are saying they're just tired of it. What has been heartening to me is also that in my day, not that this isn't my day, but in the civil rights struggles when I grew up, it was really mostly Black people. That ain't the case anymore. John, you want to start off by giving us your impressions of all of this? You know, Joyce, I think you've hit it bang on. I was uh, downtown on Sunday afternoon uh, down in front of the state capitol, uh, several hundred marchers gathering out there. Um, a really intergenerational, interracial, um, intergender crowd, which again is is I think you know I think you hit the nail on the head is different to the civil rights days. I mean, certainly you had white people who were marching with Dr. King and the the sort of the classic activists of that day, um, but we are seeing here in their tens of thousands a, a very different crowd marching. And in fact, you know, this is not something either, Joyce, that is confined solely to Pennsylvania's big cities. It's not a uh, big city Philly liberal thing or big city Pittsburgh liberal thing. Our staff reporter, Elizabeth Hardison, has been, in fact, tracking protests um, across the state. We've independently verified more than 103 protests across Pennsylvania. And if you look at the state map, they are in the Republican heartland along the northern tier, Crawford, Erie, Warren County, Jefferson, Indiana. Uh, you know, you see them, of course, naturally in state college, but they are across the state. And that, I think, is a, is a phenomenon unique to the uh, unique to the time. Wow, that is that's truly interesting. Uh, Jeffrey, how are you feeling about it? I mean, do you see Republicans as part of this movement? Well, I think it, it's safe to say, I mean, I, I literally don't know or haven't heard anybody uh, at any end of the spectrum that was not appalled by that videotape and thinks that 
I mean, everybody I know, and then that includes some, you know, prominent people in the media and conservative media, they all think the book should be thrown at these cops. So, I, I mean, there is a sense of unanimity here that this is a bad, you know, a, was a seriously bad situation. I hear what you're saying, but I think the issue is a little bit deeper than just those cops. That's what I'm trying to get to. This is a movement that is going deeper that says, uh, in many cases, there is a systemic problem with American society. And I'm wondering if if Republicans are really on board with that. They may be. I may, I'm just saying, are they really seeing this not just as a case of one bad cop hurting one poor little black man, but that this is a bigger problem? Well, if it's a bigger problem, I mean, two things. Number one, these things should be handled locally by the city officials that run the city. I mean, I find it fascinating that these situations are occurring in what are arguably the most liberal cities in America run for decades by Democratic mayors. I mean, what in the world has been going on in Minneapolis for all of these decades? Well, it, what has been going on? What has been going on in Los Angeles? What has been going on in Philadelphia? Who runs these places? And why don't they have their police organized and trained so that this doesn't happen. I mean, I do think that that's a legit question for people, all people, not just well, Republicans I, to ask. Yeah, I think Jeffrey's raising an interesting point, although I'm going to bring Rajat in here. I'm not sure that racism has been confined to one party. It's very true. But I think the issue may be, and let's see what Rajat says about this, whether we're willing, how we're willing to tackle it. And that's the thing. You want to leave it at the local level. But I think a lot of people are calling for across-the-board reform, starting federal, state, local, down to your own home, looking, sitting around your table. What do you think, Brigitte? Let's bring you into this. Well, people definitely want reform, you know, and I'm speaking not only as a Democrat, but also as a Black woman myself. But this issue does go deeper. I do believe that on a surface level, getting reform with our criminal justice system, with police, will probably be the easiest and the quickest. However, racism does go much deeper than that. You know, let's talk about the fact that a, a black man or woman with a college degree on average makes less than a white man that is a college dropout. So, you know, this issue goes a lot deeper and it's nice to see elected officials march. Again, as a black woman and someone that's politically active, how many people of color do you have on your staff? You know, there's a difference between diversity and inclusion. It's nice to have diversity for appearance, but let's also have inclusion, meaning having all voices part of the debate. And that's something that we're missing on both sides of the aisle, which, as you call me independent, you know, I have been a Democrat all my life, but I do recognize that neither party is perfect. But we need that inclusion of those voices. And that's what I see with the marches, that people are tired of being told what to do, just being given something and saying, here, be happy you have this, is that we finally want to be included. We just don't want to be invited to the party, but we want to be able to dance as well. So that's sort of, <laughs> that's sort of how I see this, this movement now. And it is We're nice to see to be able to select the music that you dance to, too. <laughs> <laughs> right? I don't know. Now, I, wasn't a, I wasn't around in the 60s, but it's nice to see the diverse group of people during the marches. One thing that I admired a lot about Martin Luther King Jr. is he wasn't just protesting in the street. He was also at the White House working on those policies right. to make that change. That's and we right. just have to remember that we need both. 
Well, one of the things that's good and, uh, you know, about where we are now, too, is frankly, we do have black elected officials. <laughs> I mean, we do have people in places of power that should be using their power to push this envelope a little further. I mean, John, the Black Caucus basically shut things down earlier this week and said, we're not doing nothing until we move forward on this. Is that helpful at level or is that just show? I mean, that was an extraordinary display on the House floor on Monday afternoon where we had black, we had black lawmakers take the speaker's rostrum, stay up there for 90 minutes, offering really fiery, really passionate speeches about the need for police reform. And it got and it got results, you know, within, you know, by the end of that, Speaker Terzai was up there saying that he wanted to hold a special session on police reform. They met for about 20, they met on and off for about 24 hours, reached agreement to start moving some legislation. Those are all very important first steps. As Representative Malcolm Kenyatta of Philadelphia was telling me, though, they have seen Representative Terzai offer promises before not to carry through on them. So, you know, the, the proof will be when those votes are up on the board in the House chamber and up on the Senate chamber and those bills have actually moved. But, you know, those black lawmakers can at least point to a tangible result. They got up there, they called for action, and within two hours, the wheels of the House were starting to move. You can question whether Representative Terzai, who's retiring at year's end, or may in fact announce that uh, sometime shortly after we record this, was going for a legacy burnishing, or it was a play for suburban voters that Republicans need this fall, or if it's something he honestly believes, but the tactic yielded a uh, genuine result. I mean, I have to tell you, I was a little surprised to see that Terzai got on the bandwagon and so much so uh, so quickly and so easily. I would have expected him to kind of, uh, maybe I'm wrong, to kind of, you know, just ignore this or delay it or simply not, re or even have some belligerent response. But so is it just that he's tired or are we really seeing, I mean, shudder, shudder, a shift, a change, a real fundamental change in attitudes from some people that we wouldn't expect? Brigitte, or you, even one of you guys can take this, Brigitte or Jeffrey. Well, you know, a lot well, of people you know, will I say up front that racism is wrong. And that's where we have to see the proof is in the pudding with the not just the policies put forth, but what actually gets passed. We now see the police union starting to speak out. And rightfully so, they're trying to remind everyone that every cop is not bad, but they are pushing back on some of these proposals on both the federal and state, different state levels that are being uh, proposed. So we'll have to see, especially with this being an election year, how powerful uh, their lobbying is going to be with, you know, how these bills end up at the end. So unfortunately, you can't take the politics out of the politics. <laughs> yeah. And already I've noticed that the, one of the police unions has gone after Vice President Biden, yes. saying that he used to be on their side and now they feel he isn't. And, you know, they've they've attacked him, et cetera. On the other hand, uh, looking at the television screen here as we're talking, I see a Chiron that says in Washington that Democrats and Republicans seem to be coming together on police reforms. So I, I don't know what the details are and what exactly that means. But I mean, clearly there's an appetite to do something here. I mean, I, I just don't see anything that argues against that. The question is, uh, of course, going to be what and who? I mean, I'm a little concerned when the federal government starts to do this, because I really do think that policing is a local function. I mean, I don't want, you know, some building of Washington bureaucrats telling the police commissioner or the police chief of Harrisburg what to do. I mean, I just don't think that's a good idea. Well, let me let's let's stop it right here. We're going to take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, 
we're going to really delve into some of the, at least what's on the table as far as reform. And I have to tell you, Jeffrey, I was talking to a very bright young uh, former Susquehanna Township police officer who's uh, just brilliant. And she seems to think there needs to be some federal role in this. So we'll come back and talk about that in just a few minutes. And we'll look at also what's going on in Washington, D.C. Stay tuned. Okay, we are back. And again, if you'd like to join us, you can do so. All you have to do is check us out on Twitter or on Facebook at Battleground PA, and you can send an email to topics at battlegroundpa.org. So look, let's get back into it. We've got Jeffrey Lord, we've got Rajat Harris, and we've got John Mysick with us. So listen, let's delve into some of these reform. I was, as I, at the break, I was basically saying that I talked yesterday to, um, her name is Francia Danon Henry, and she is a former, I think, I forget her title, but she is an officer, was a former with the Susquehanna Township Police Department just as recently as uh, April. She's gone on to do some high-level executive thing with the uh, mass transit, but she indicated that perhaps there does need to be some federal standards on use of force that put that we need to all, every jurisdiction needs to be on the same page with how far police can go in killing someone. I mean, that's basically it. So she is calling for that. And I have heard many police officers calling for some sort of federal standards. The other thing that's out there, and I, I'd like to hear you all weigh in on this, are, are the proposals to actually perhaps have citizen advisory boards at the local levels. Now, I'm going to tell you, having been in, in city government, this is not something I know that the police departments or policemen would welcome. But let's talk about federal standards and the citizens advisory boards. You want to head start, Rajat? I do think we should have federal standards. Uh, things shouldn't be different from state to state. And originally, when we spoke about the coronavirus, I thought the same thing that there should have been uh, something from the federal level that give guidance to the states uh, moving down. The federal level should have, I mean, if they outlaw chokeholds, then states and local governments don't have to worry about it. So I definitely think that the federal government should pass some reforms and give the states something to uh, start with. It's not fair that you go to Pennsylvania and a police department can use one type of force and then you go to Minnesota, you know, and they can use something something different. So I think that's a great idea. And I do hope our federal government, uh, they work together to pass something. What about these citizens advisory boards? Are you in favor of that? Is that the Oh, def- definitely. Um, mm-hmm. I was reading just last night on Camden, uh, New Jersey, um, how that city, while not perfect, the crime has dropped. The community trusts their police a lot more because the police are more in the communities. People know them, so they trust them. And, you know, resources also are going into social programs to help that community more. I think that citizen advisory boards is a great idea. Jeffrey, how are you feeling about these issues? Well, you know, the memory stirs here. And I I, I keep thinking that when, um, I almost want to say John Lindsay was the mayor of New York, that they created exactly that. For New York City, I, I honestly don't know whether it still exists, et cetera. But I certainly think, you know, that's fine. But I mean, the ultimate citizen advisory board in any city is the elected mayor, the mayor of whatever the mayor of whatever city is chosen by the citizens of whatever city to run the police department. 
Yeah, so, Jeffrey, in effect, he's there. Jeffrey Wanamir right there, having worked in state government. But he becomes basically the, the supervisor and the protector of the police. You know, you, it, it, it becomes a different role. You're right, he's elected. But when there is an incident, you know, you're not going to turn to the mayor to basically, you know, serve. Well, why wouldn't that? why wouldn't that happen inevitably with human beings? If you've got a citizens commission, I mean, you would get people on there who would feel very protect, come to feel very protective of the police. You know what? I mean, it, could, it would just happen all over again, except they wouldn't be elected. You know, Jeffrey, that's a good point. And that came up actually from one of our readers. Let me bring John into that came up to say, what kind of teeth would a citizen advisory board have? What if they do start getting cozy? They're so mesmerized by the chief of police or something. Uh, so is the citizen advisory, I mean, it has its, its weaknesses, I guess, unless they have some authority to do something, right, uh, John? Well, let me, uh, let me offer two points for conversation to briefly revisit what the federal government can do. The biggest thing the federal government can do is repeal 10, Act 1033. That's the federal statute that allows for the transfer of federal military surplus to local police departments. More than any other factor that's built up distrust between the community, between police and the community they serve is the steady militarization of the police departments over these last 10 or 15 years. When you have police officers rolling into neighborhoods in AMRAPs, those armored assault vehicles we've seen so much, when departments are being issued flashbang grenades or bayonets, that is, which is something that's actually happening. There's no logical reason for a police officer to need to fix a bayonet to the end of his or her weapon. Uh, <laughs> President Obama signed an executive order that ended that transfer. The current administration reversed that order. And we have seen the fruits of that in these, in these last few weeks with heavily armed police moving into cities to try to quell unrest. Um, that is not the way to build bonds of, of trust and mutual respect if the police roll in like an occupying force rather than public servants. Keep that in mind, public servants who are paid to protect and to serve. Um, to your point, Joyce, about citizens advisory boards, um, those will have as much teeth or as little teeth, as I'm sure you're aware, as policymakers are going to allow it to have. There is that danger always that um, once you get inside the bubble that perhaps you become a little bit too cozy. But I think where that can be neutralized is making sure that the composition of those boards is as is as diverse as humanly possible. Um, that you bring in black leaders, that you bring in Hispanic leaders, that you bring in Asian American leaders who bring a different point of view and a different perspective to the table and make sure that their voices are elevated and make sure that you give those boards uh, real oversight teeth, not people who are simply going to be a hallelujah chorus for the police department. Exactly. Exactly. Well, listen, you've raised another issue there that has been on people's minds uh, this week, too. Listen, um, I, I was going to have on um, Senator Casey because he and several other uh, lawmakers have uh, called for us. They're trying to make sure that the military, that this idea that President Trump is floated about sending the military into city streets uh, doesn't really happen. You know, that did upset a lot of people. And I have to tell you, that's why I uh, I even, you know, with Peggy Noonan, who's a Wall Street Journal columnist, a Republican, not that she has been lockstep with President Trump, but she did warn that that was something that concerned a lot of Americans, Republicans, as well as Democrats, Jeffrey. I mean, did you have any concern about the president's threat to actually use the military against American citizens? None. And and I'll tell you exactly why. I mean, I, and I have gone back and taken a look at this in some detail. President Eisenhower sent the military into Little Rock, Arkansas, to make sure that the Central High School in 1957 was going to be integrated and to protect the, the black high school students 
who were integrating the school. President Kennedy sent them to Birmingham, Alabama to restore order after the race riots and Bull Connor and all of this. He sent them to the University of Mississippi to protect James Meredith when he was trying to enroll at the University of Mississippi. He sent them to the University of Alabama when uh, Vivian Malone and James Hood were the first two black students. And George Wallace, the governor of Alabama, the Democrat governor of Alabama, I might add, was standing in the schoolhouse door. And he was told by General Henry Graham, move aside. President Bush, when I was in the Bush 41 administration at HUD with Secretary Jack Kemp, sent the military into Los Angeles to, to restore order. And notably, after the assassination of Dr. King and riots erupted around the country, President Lyndon Johnson sent 13,000 troops into Washington, D.C. And I've, I've gone back and read the Washington Post stories of all this. And they said they were there to, this is the words of the Post, not mine, quote unquote, occupy the city and restore order. And there were pictures of uh, machine gun emplacements on the steps of the United States Senate on the Capitol building pointing outward. This kind of thing has been done over and over and over by American presidents. Hi, Jeffrey, I think that's a very good point, and you've you made your argument there, but I think there might be the little bit of difference that they were invited in, that, that at least in those re regions, they actually thought they needed them and they requested it. I think the issue here was that people didn't think it had gone that far, and there hadn't been the request for it. Rajat, I don't know, are, are, have you been in contact or been, been uh, getting the Democrat view of all of this? I don't think we can compare this to to what happened in the 60s within our with integrating the schools, you know, with the murder of Martin Luther King. I think the president is is tr trying to use the military unnecessarily. And we have individuals, unfortunately, their names escaped me at the moment. But we have uh, we have individuals within his administration that have said that they feel as though the military should be kept out of the politics. And, you know, I agree with that. And this is why, you know, we need to be loyal, not to a particular political party, or not to a particular person, but to what's right. Well, and I, I think that's what we're missing in today's world, is people aren't loyal to what's right. They're loyal to a one person, or they're loyal to a party. And, you know, that's a problem. I think that's one reason we're in the mess that we're in today. And I, I think that's very good. I think we do have to now, though, talk about exactly this national level and how all of these protests and the concerns are, are going to impact November, are going to impact the 2020 elections. And I will say that uh, at least the latest CNN poll shows that Trump's popularity dropping pretty substantially. And so my question to you guys, with all, especially with the the photo op and, and the calling, threats to call in, and in the military and the concerns for how uh, peaceful protesters were treated in Lafayette Square. I mean, is this helping or hurting the Trump's chances for re-election? Let's start with John. And don't worry, Jeffrey, you're going to get your, your point in there. I know. John, <laughs> what I learned my lesson in 2016, as Jeffrey will surely remember, not to uh, predict anything <laughs> too far in advance. But look, the president's approvals are mired in the mid-40s. They have not moved uh, for the entire nearly four years of his presidency. And there is deep, deep voter dissatisfaction. If you look at the polling numbers over his handling of the economy, over his handling of the pandemic, and now his management of the protests. If we look at the most recent primary results, Joyce, here in Pennsylvania, about 300,000 more Democrats came out for Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders than did Republicans for Donald Trump. 
Um, so that, you know, that is that is an issue. Um, those voters are motivated already. If these protests drag on and there's every indication, I hate to use drag on, if they endure, pardon me, and there's every indication that they will. And the White House remains flat footed in its management of this issue and fails to act. And the, and the White House fails to get behind anything substantive in reform. Um, that will come back and haunt the president. And, you know, there are I'm sure there are commercials being made even as we speak. Um, getting ready to hammer him on this. Uh, so they are they're walking a very delicate line right now. Well, Jeffrey, look, listen, uh, the thing that caught my attention this week, too, was even someone like Colin Powell, who basically stays behind the scenes and former secretary, what, Defense Secretary James Mattis coming out and just really rebuking the president. Powell even went so far as to say the president lies, for goodness sake. Come on. So, I mean, and Noonan, I mean, Peggy Noonan wrote that, Something has dramatically changed for the president. Well, first of all, and Joyce, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that this past Sunday, Charlie Giroux's column in in the Patriot News said that uh, as of Friday this past week when votes were counted, Donald Trump had 100,000 more votes than Joe Biden. Yeah, now, but, but, that, but that turned out to be wrong, Jeffrey. Yeah, that that resulted not last the weekend. Yeah, that's why I cautioned him. Please don't try to write your column based on uh, incomplete results. That was misleading. But go ahead. Well, at any rate, uh, you know, the the point that I and I made this in 2016 is that, uh, you know, you've got a lot of people in media who are, frankly, out of touch and they rely on these polls, which are, frankly, not very good. I was both on CNN, but living here. And, uh, you know, as I was driving around, I think I know I've told you the story about taking my mom out for a pumpkin there Halloween weekend. And there were Trump signs all over the place. And I explained this on CNN the following Monday. And they all looked at me like I was insane. I I can tell you right now there are Trump signs sprinkled throughout my neighborhood. I don't see any Biden signs at all. So I'm just suggesting that, you know, it is way too soon. I think these polls are are. you know, snapshots and and quite possibly not even accurate snapshots yeah, of what's I'm going like, on. The polls is one thing, but I guess the concern that you have people really respected people stepping out and and really questioning quite strongly the president's leadership. Uh, uh, Rajet, you want to come in here and, and talk about whether any of this is actually helping Biden, even though it may not be helping Trump. Is it helping Biden? I think it's astounding when you have respected leaders such as Colin Powell come out and speak out against the president. And the reason why I say that is with the Republican Party, you don't normally see that. Uh, Between the two parties, Republicans are normally more loyal to each other, at least in public. So the fact that they're publicly coming out um, and speaking against the president and his actions and things that he's doing to me is absolutely astounding. Um, I don't know if that necessarily helps Biden. I do think that as the Democratic Party, we need to give people something to vote for. And I look forward to being part of that as we move, you know, we move forward. Um, We are five months away from the election. Um, I do think if the election was held now because of everything going on, uh, things would uh, be very good for the vice president. Um, I also think and I've been saying this from the beginning, too. Um, There's a lot more pressure for him to choose a black woman as his vice presidential running mate because of everything going on. And this goes back to what I said before. It's not just about diversity. It's about inclusion. So, you know, that could make a difference as well. I just hope that people who are out there protesting 
the biggest march that we need is to the voting booth on November 3rd. And that's if the I could, protest that we need to start planning right now. Okay, Jeff, if, if, chomping at the bit. Go ahead. <laughs> if, I, if I could just say this, uh, I worked with Colin Powell in the Reagan White House. And it was well known that he was basically a liberal. So there's there's nothing astonishing here. Colin Powell is not a quote unquote Republican in that sense. And and in the larger sense, internally in the Republican Party, this is part and parcel of a battle that's been going on for decades between the Republican establishment and conservatives in the Republican Party. I have gone back and I mean I remembered these, but I went back to make sure I was correct. And I found, of course, all of these statements from establishment Republicans as Ronald Reagan was on the rise, that he was an extremist. He was a racist. If he ever got nominated, he would ruin the Republican Party. The Republican Party would never be the same. He could destroy the country if he got elected. I mean, this was from Republicans with names like Nelson Rockefeller and Charles Percy, Jacob Javits, Gerald Ford, on and on and on and on and on went the list. This is exactly what we're seeing here with Mitt Romney. Can I But remember, it's not just the presidency that the Republicans can lose. I mean, look at the polls. Look at Arizona. There's a good chance that the Democrats are going to take Arizona and some of the other states. The Democrats are in a good position to even take control of the Senate. I I know we always focus on the top the top race, but there's a lot of down ballot races that can also make a difference and what happens in the next four years. So, you know, it's not just a presidency that Republicans can lose with Trump at the top. It's also the Senate as well. Well, let, let's talk. Let's talk now about this. This one final thing that we have to get in here. We clearly we know it's too early to predict what's going to happen in November, but the signs don't look good for the current administration unless things change, including the economy. And and that's all dependent upon what happens with COVID-19. Uh, we have, it looks like we're slowly, slowly reopening, but look, even it's not a given that if these numbers rise, and we are seeing the numbers now rise in some parts of the country uh, with the reopening, if we see that happening, it's not going to help the economy. I don't see it's going to help. Clearly, I don't see that it's going to help uh, President Trump. What are your thoughts on this, John? Look, I mean, the, the one thing the president has run on, Joyce, time and again, is the strength of the economy, the bullishness of the stock market. The economy is now officially in recession, as we know. Uh, tens of millions of Americans are unemployed. Uh, the jobs report that came back the other week um, looked good initially, and then we realized that there was a classification error that actually made the unemployment rate look higher than it is. Um, having taken that one arrow out of his quiver, and that's the main pr- arrow in the president's quiver, um, it is very difficult to run on a booming economy when the economy is not booming. Um, the White House's plans to address this, I would I would like to know what they are. So this is undoubtedly a problem. The president still gets high marks, mind, in polling for his man, for. His, for those who believe he would manage the economy better than Joe Biden, um, but there is still dissatisfaction over the direction of the country. There are people who are who are scared for their future, um, and so far the messaging out of the White House has not been encouraging on that. Jeff, are you worried about about this COVID nineteen to cause some problems for the economy? Well, I think it's lessening, and and ironically, I think all of the protests over uh, George Floyd have illustrated, in a practical sense, what will or will not happen with the virus. I mean, if we see in, what, two weeks that there's some enormous spike across the country 
of the virus, we'll know that there's still a problem, you know, getting together. But in fact, if we don't see it, what these protests unintentionally will illustrate is it's okay to get back to, to you know, normal life. The White House, it's, it's my understanding, is going to think that there's going to be another stimulus bill before August. The numbers on Friday were much better than what were predicted. I do think the country is poised to, to you know, have a, have a very good rebound from all of this. But uh, it is situational in terms of the virus, and there's still more that we have yet to see. But certainly, I mean, living in Cumberland County, which is now, uh, what are we, a, a green county, um, driving around over the weekend, things were uh, open all over the place. And uh, all I can say is, thank God, I need a haircut. <laughs> yeah, but, but I'll tell you, there's still a lot of people like me uh, who, uh, who are skittish about resuming life as normal. Rajet, I'm going to give you the last word on this. It's going to it's going to be a problem. Um, we still have people thinking that there's going to be a recurrence as we move forward in the fall. You know, all of these jobs that were lost, we still don't know what businesses can reopen, which ones are going to close. And we all know uh, that mostly affects people directly. Uh, we still don't know what happens when uh, these mortgage companies, rental offices, PP&L and whatnot can come back and ask for the back payments that people don't have to worry about paying right now. Are people going to be evicted? Uh, do they have a job to help pay the back rent? It's, it's an issue uh, moving forward. If there is going to be another stimulus uh, package for workers, not for you know, big corporations, um, I hope that does happen because people are struggling uh, economically. And that's going to be an issue, um, not only for uh, the current president, but again, as Democrats, we have to give uh, the voters a reason to come out. So we need to make sure that our plan is out there to help people get back on their feet financially. And again, we, we go back to the healthcare. Are people able to get tested if they have symptoms? Are they able to get the treatment that they needed? Are they able to pay for it? These are all issues that are going to continue to plague our candidates and elected officials as we move forward. Well, it's clear to me, guys, that we are in the middle of monumental <laughs> upheaval and unrest, that it is not over yet, that we are living through. I mean, we keep saying unprecedented, but I have to tell you, I've never lived through a pandemic and uh, racial uh, strife and unrest and all of the things that we're facing now. So we just have to stay tuned and see how all of this plays out as we, um, you know, as we keep our eye on exactly every development. I think right now is the time that I'm urging people to stay informed because every day seems to bring something different. So with that, I'm going to thank John Mysick, Rajat Harris, and Jeffrey Lord for joining us once again for Battleground PA. And it is truly shaping up to be a battle in Pennsylvania. This was Battleground PA. Be sure to rate and subscribe to us so you don't miss a beat. Have an idea for an episode? Tweet us at Battleground PA or email us at topics at battlegroundpa.org. Meanwhile, stay in the know between episodes on penlive.com. Battleground PA is hosted by PenLive's opinion editor, Joyce Davis, and is produced by Penn Studios director, Salim Michelle McClouf, and edited by Martin Boutros. More info and past episodes can be found at battlegroundpa.org.